from VQR and the Center for Media and Citizenship, this is Episode 3 of Circle of Willis, where I discuss the science and politics of sexual identity with Lisa Diamond of the University of Utah. And we'll also hear about Lisa's personal story, how she came to identify as a, as a feminist, as a lesbian, and as a scientist, and how all of those identities have really converged on a profound body of work. Have a listen. Hey everyone, it's Jim Cohn. This is my podcast. It's called Circle of Willis. Uh, you're not going to believe this, but this episode features Lisa Diamond, professor of psychology and gender studies at the University of Utah. And, and we are going to talk about everything from the science and politics of sexual identity to Lisa's personal experience coming to identify as a lesbian. How about that? Uh, I feel really lucky to have had the opportunity to talk to Lisa because, well, because, you know, Lisa is both an excellent conversation partner and an internationally recognized pioneer in the scientific study of sexual identity development. And, uh, and that's not too easy to pull off, that combination. Now, Lisa, Lisa's sort of fearless. I don't know if she'd cop to that, but it's true. For example, uh, one of the things, uh, one, of the, one of the many things to admire about Lisa is that she sees no contradiction in having both a, a kind of a strong scientific and a strong political point of view. Certainly, uh, certainly on questions of sexual identity and bonding, but on a, on a number of other issues as well. And uh, and she she in fact she describes herself as a feminist scientist, which is not to say that her her science is uniquely feminist in some way, but rather to sort of just assert that she's both a feminist and a scientist. And proudly so, sometimes controversially so. I mean, I mean, she is she's absolutely willing to let politics inform her scientific point of view, but she is equally willing to let science sort of update and inform her politics. Now, in 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 our conversation, we talk a lot about the sample of women, this this sample that she studied for years, for decades now. And, uh, and how her pursuit of the sample grew out of a, a social commitment to bring sexual identity development into the sort of scientific light. But we also discuss how the, the systematic study of this sample caused her to almost completely rethink her understanding of same-sex sexuality. And I, I, guess, I guess now is a good time to point out that if, if you're interested in a, a sort of a deeper dive into this research, you should check out her award-winning 2009 book, entitled Sexual Fluidity, Understanding Women's Love and Desire, uh, a link to which you can, you can find at circleofwillispodcast.com. And I guess, I guess while I'm at that, while I'm at it here, uh, you, can, you can also find a link there to a truly, really a truly seminal paper that Lisa wrote for, for Psychological Review uh, on the differences between romantic love and sexual attraction in the determination of sexual orientation. It's an, uh, it's an amazing 
amazing piece of work and, and really, really pretty accessible, even for, for non-specialists. I, I think you should read it. But uh, now I, I've, I've already said that Lisa spends a lot of time discussing her own sort of emerging identity as a lesbian. Uh, but, but in listening to the conversation again, as, as I did recently, just the, actually just this morning, um, it struck me that, that Lisa's is really the story of, of multiple emerging identities. Uh, for, for example, you know, it's, all, it's also about the, the development of her political identity as a feminist and, and about the development of her professional identity as a, as a scientist. And, and what's fascinating uh, to me about her story is, is how, uh, as each of these identities develops, the, they slowly sort of intertwine over time to kind of converge on her work as one of our, really one of our most important psychological scientists. I think, you know, I think, I think her story is, is instructive, you know. The, the way that we develop really can inform our interests, you know, the, the questions we ask. And, it, and it's probably true that we should draw from, or, or at the very least, sort of respect the sources of information and, and identity that constitute who we are as we're, as we're developing our, our professional lives. You know, Lisa's story really illustrates for me how the, the convergence of personal and professional interests can be powerfully rewarding, not only for her, but, you know, owing to the body of knowledge she's contributed, really, for all of us. And at any rate, uh, I'm deeply, deeply grateful that, that Lisa took the time with me to record this conversation. You know, throughout, she's, she's really, she's thoughtful, she's funny, she's wise, and above all, I would say extremely generous in, in her level of self-disclosure. Now, that kind of generosity is, is really, it's priceless. And, and I'm, I'm so glad to have captured just a little bit of it uh, to share with you here. So uh, that said, people of the world, struggling students, colleagues, friends, uh, perplexed adolescents everywhere, here's, here's Lisa Diamond. Most low brow, you know, you can you can do yeah, it just from your bedroom. Brow. That's the that's what I'm shooting. And then you can get you know, a huge stuff. number of followers, and then it just sort of takes it just off. Does its own thing. Mm-hmm. Well, that's why I asked you to come in and talk to me so I can get a huge number of followers. There you go. Yeah, that'll work. See? Yeah, it should. Mm-hmm. You're kind of famous. You have a Wikipedia entry. What? Did you know that? No. Yeah, I found it. I don't have a Wikipedia entry. Uh, that has How do got, you do that? Th- I, I had no idea. Yeah, now I I'm found sort of it. Obsessed. Now yeah, I feel like don't I'm... look at it yet because I don't want to bias you. Mm. I don't know if it's true or I'm not. Afraid. I don't see if you'll I'm get afraid of upset. what's on there. It said, I, I, it said you're a feminist. Is that I am a you? feminist, okay, damn good. it. See, that's excellent. It's, it's accurate. It's accurate. <laughs> what, okay, so I guess when I think of you, I think of feminism i also think of sexual identity and you've sort of blown my mind with that because i i really doing my job well you know i didn't 
<laughs> I never, I well, part of part of part of it is that I come from a very working class background. Good people, right? Not bad people, but definitely sexist people. Definitely homophobic well, so both people. My I mean, my parents came from. My, my mom is from a very small town in Florida and still yeah. has a lot of latent Just sexism nervous. and racism. And my sure. dad, you know, was raised, you know, very poor and working classes. His father died when he was 16. So his yeah. mom was... So they both came from um, not explicitly conservative, but kind of traditional. And I think especially my mom from the South. I mean, her yeah. when we visit her relatives... It's like a different world. It's like, you know, uh, a much more segregated world. Yeah. And that's always a, a bit of a shock. Did you, but did she, so, but did she go to college and think, I can't remember. She did go to college. She is interesting. She has a, a, a background that I didn't know a lot about until I started doing interviews with her. And I was, it sort of blew my mind because I didn't know that much about her background. And, you know, she was in this really kind of small town where education for girls was not a big thing. Right. Um, and she, at some point she decided that she really wanted to get out of Lakeland and go Lakeland. to college, but there was no money. Her piano teacher, because my mom was a pianist and she, and she ended up becoming a piano teacher. Her piano teacher um, found a bunch of scholarships for her to apply to and and sent my mom on these, you know, made tapes of her playing piano. And she got a scholarship to pay for the first year. Uh, but then she showed up to, at Wesleyan, Georgia. Uh-huh. Uh, and, and her mom was not in favor of it. She was like, this is crazy. We don't have enough money for you to, you know, this is, but, you know, just trying to get through the first year. And she ended up being something like $200 short to 200. register. And her piano teacher took a collection from other families in the community. In Lakeland. Yeah, to support my mom. Lakeland, Florida. Lakeland, Florida. Wow. And, and she my went, mom... And that's, that's in Georgia. The Wesleyan in Georgia is in Atlanta? No. No, where is it? I don't remember exactly. I don't even... I, don't even I know visited it, it once, but really? it's small. It's small town? It's small. Like some, something like Athens, that kind of small? Yeah. Or? And I remember at one point, you know, as... Because Lakeland, again, is a... Is a kind of, and I, I remember saying to my mother at some point, I don't know how you came out of that Lakeland, town. Florida. Right. How did you, you know, how did you know to, you know, how, how did you not end up there? And mom looked at me and she said, I was not going to stay. <laughs> so she, she wanted out. She wanted, she out. wanted out. And she got Hell out and this. I gained no so more much of this. respect for her because... Yeah. Because that's she, that's tricky. She became a what, really I mean, when, when was that? That was like the mid '60s. Let's see. She and my dad got married '64, uh, so I think she got out around. She was born in '43. Um, '43. So she got out when she was 18. Yeah. But she didn't finish college because she met my dad during the summer, <sighs> right? Working as a waitress in New Jersey. Wait, well, how, what, well, I don't know. That's a lot of story there going Well, she from, just, you know, from one of her roommates, she was like, I need to make money over the summer or else I can't keep going to college. And I need college. to go to New Jersey to and, make money? Well, that this was little, where a lot of the, the Catskills, like, there were a lot of these sort of summer clubs uh-huh. for the, the, the New York So she got set. a job. She got the, a job yeah. as a waitress. And, um, and that's where she met my dad at the New Jersey Shore during the summer. Um, and they knew each other for three months. 
and he proposed, and so That's, she left they college. They did that then. I know. They did, people did that then. They did that then, and they that kind of shocked me. And her mom totally disapproved and wouldn't go to the wedding. Of course she did. Wouldn't go to the wedding. Yeah, well, there you go. Yeah. Three months. Yeah. And your dad was going to med school? Or? Yeah. 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 <sighs> and he had also sort of pulled himself up by his bootstraps to... He was you know, from New Jersey? He was from, well, he was in, he spent his childhood in Washington Heights in New York. New York. And then they so moved to on, New Jersey. Sort of on the northern part yeah. of Manhattan. Uh, and then, uh, and then went to Rutgers uh-huh. uh, for undergrad. Yeah. And then in Newark? To, pardon? In Newark? Yeah. 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 So they both had these really hard scrabble, um, backgrounds and we're both really uh and so then they end up in los angeles los angeles you know which is like for for you know someone uh-huh. raised in the winters uh-huh. of new york for yeah. my dad it was like you know it did he, this uh, sounds good which it does i bet i mean he you're a physician in the in the early 70s warm, in los angeles warm, warm weather it's warm and you know it's he went sunny to all the time cedar sinai medical center which would at that time was really becoming like a rising star for cardiovascular medicine, which was what, you know, he ended yeah. up doing. So it was one of those, uh, you know, right place, right time. And that's where things. you spring forth out of the void. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Los Angeles. So you're an L.A. LA girl. I was born in L.A. Yeah, yeah, and raised. And raised. And, and it, how did it affect you? Um, I really was not crazy about L.A., um, uh, so I don't know how it affected me. I, I and it's funny because as I got older, and especially when I went to college in Chicago, people yeah. would say to me, "You don't seem like you're from LA. You seem like an East Coast person." And everyone has always well, told me that I seem like I'm from New York. Yeah, um, you do I, have a New Yorky kind of. Yeah, kind of and vibe. I don't. You know, I don't. Who knows? You know. But what you know, LA. Uh, you know, LA can have a similar kind of vibe. It seems to me sometimes. I mean, it depends on what part. I mean, LA is very diverse. Yeah. But there there are parts of LA that have that sort of arty, you know, yeah. you know, cultural and interest. And I did a lot of theater. I mean, because it's LA. Yeah. Like I was into acting at a very young age and I tried to do it, you know, cuz the, the bad thing about being raised in LA if you're into theater at all is like if you show any aptitude for anything theatrical then everyone's like oh well you should try and get an agent and start to do commercials and blah 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 blah, right, blah, blah. Right, and that's right. actually really hard to do if you really want to do that it's like a full-time job yeah. and so like i was going to an acting school where everybody else in my acting classes was like doing professional stuff there was like people who ended up being like famous in my uh i think stephen dorf was like in stephen one of my dorf. classes and he was he up... like a action guy or something yeah he did some like big movie and i was like oh my god um <laughs> but that like i was not you know i was never successful at that i never managed to get an agent or do anything and so i felt like oh i was just into doing plays yeah. you know and but it was it's hard in la to to you know just want to do that because everyone's trying to get you to yeah. like do some toothpaste commercial and that <laughs> was not my thing that wasn't your thing what, did, what, what was your th- I mean did you did you identify as a sort of feminist early on or was not it, you, until you were sort of high, later in high school. high school well yeah. high school sort of like I mean I think about if if you're gonna get that way it's not gonna be before high school you know really. Betty Friedan because I went to an all girls high school. Is that how you pronounce it? Friedan? Yeah. I thought it was Frieden for no, some reason. Oh, my whole life. I've just, and my mind is blown all of a sudden. She came to talk at my high school, I think when I was in like 
ninth grade, maybe ninth. I don't even. I don't even know who she was. Betty Friedan goes goes to your high school. Yeah. In the ninth grade. Uh, when I was in the ninth grade, and you know what? she was That's an old curmudgeon, you know, at that high point. High school. But it was Jesus. kind of controversial because, um, you know, this was an all-girls school. It was, you know, there were a lot of sort of society girls there, oh, and a lot of them thought that school, feminism right. was just like not for them. So it was very controversial, and I remember hearing people debate, you know, like whether it was a good idea that Betty Friedan was coming, and I was like, I don't even know. Betty this is what, Friedan like is. 1985? This would have been, yeah, I guess 1985. Yeah. And, uh, and she just said, you know, what, this is what feminism is. If you think that you should be able to make your own decision about whether you want a job or whether you have a family or whether you do both, if you just think that that should be your own decision to make, and that seemed pretty welcome obvious to feminism. To yeah. And I was like, oh my God, really? You know, and <laughs> why? Because you didn't, you hadn't entertained I don't that. Think oh, you know, I had... one of the things that I thought, I remember when I, when I first, I remember first learning about feminism. And one of the things that I think that, that struck me when I was first experiencing that was I hadn't thought about the fact that that those things weren't true. Mm. until someone was telling me that that ought to be true. Yeah. Like it didn't, I mean, it was sort of, I mean, not that I didn't see sexism happening, but I hadn't really reflected upon it. Yeah, I don't have a clear memory of what I thought before that. Um, I just hadn't, you know, I think maybe it was just, again, right person, right time. My brain was sort of ready for it. Yep. And my closest friends, you know, my, my very best friend who I've known since I was five, Wow. Uh, is uh, a woman named Janice Kim, and she was the child, she was a Korean child of immigrants. You know, uh-huh. her parents basically came over here, uh, had her, um, and she didn't speak any English. And that she went through kindergarten twice just to learn English. Uh, oh, and man. then we met, you know, in elementary school, and she was always really influenced because she, because she knew from a very early age. And again, it was this sort of classic Korean immigrant experience of, I need to do, succeed for my parents because I'm going to yeah. support them. She was an only child. She's going to make the change. So she, even She's at that age, she vanguard. was like thinking about her future and thinking about, you know, career. And so because she was so career focused, she was like, that, you know, that was an amazing speech. That is awesome. Like feminism is awesome. And so she sort of helped to articulate for me you know, like, yeah. So a part of it was hearing Betty Friedan. Part of it was having a group of friends that were like, well, hell yeah. Yeah. You know, h- hello. Um, and you were in, a, in an all-girls for private school? Yeah. Boarding school? Yeah. No, not boarding school. Not boarding school. school. Private school. Um, so that, that probably helped a bit, too. Yeah. I mean, I thought it was great because there wasn't, you know all this attention on uh, how you looked you know there were we had uniforms right you know you just showed up for class wearing your uniform with your hair all crazy and (laughs) it wasn't this you know when i when i see uh television series where you see people at high school and there's like it's basically a meat market yeah you know and it wasn't like that at all so so you went on you went to the university of chicago right Mm -hmm. for undergrad Mm -hmm. you must have been a really good student I was a very good student. Holy crap. But my dad was really disappointed that I didn't want to go to, you know, Harvard or Yale or Princeton. Really? Because, yeah, because, you know, he had in his Jesus. mind, I think he was really proud of me, but he had a certain, you know, I think, I think, 
you know, University of Chicago is sort of lower on the radar. And so yeah. I, you don't I think about it. It's, it's, not, it's, yeah. not as, it's not a, as much a part of the popular, com- but you know, they take that as a as a badge of honor. Exactly. Right? Exactly. It's where it's where fun goes to die. Exactly. Right. That's the that's uh, the slogan. And that was you know because I was not like a social you know kind of kid, so um, but I think as once I was there, um, he you know I think he he understood. The reputation. Of oh the my God! It's an incredible made. reputation. It's an amazing. Well, I mean, I think it has, in some ways it has more of a reputation as a place for graduate study than undergrad. Yeah, I think and that's probably that time, true. And at that time, the ratio of graduate students there were two graduate students for every undergrad student. So, oh my, God. there were a lot of graduate students. So that there. gave you a lot of ex- uh, exposure to graduate school as well, probably. Somewhat, although you know it was always like a big mystery. Well, the thing was funny, you know, because I did a lot of theater and I did a lot of music, and I was always meeting first or second year graduate students uh-huh. because as we all know after the first or second year you're really working hard so you just kind of disappear yeah and so i was like how long does graduate school take because the only graduate students i've ever met it takes two years right, and like they just they disappear it's like <laughs> poof they're gone you know i i met the first years and the second years and then it's like they go underground well so what'd you do at university of chicago did you were you a psych major i i was a psych major Okay. Sort of by accident. By accident? Because yeah, me um, too, actually. I, I, I had a very, my, my roommate uh, was my very best friend, and also, like, I was completely in love with her. Um, uh, and how'd that go? We were, well, it never turned Nothing out happened. into anything, but, like, you know, if it wasn't for her, but I, you, I would never. But by, by this time, are you fully identifying as a no lesbian way. person? At that point, I just, I view, the way I dealt with my sexuality in high school was I believed that I was just not a sexual person and that and I, I apparently my friend i've forgotten this i announced to my friends in 10th grade that i was never planning to get married or have any relationships wow and they were like um oh okay all right um but then i did <laughs> yeah they're like what what what's the content why does this come up? i don't even remember but at around i think around my junior year i'd gotten involved with some community theater uh-huh um and and one of the people who was involved in that group uh, ended up being my sort of first like major boyfriend, and it was perfect because he at, we started you know becoming close friends, and then and then he left to go to college in Berkeley, so it was perfect, right? Because we had no he was gone, and so we <laughs> yeah, just yeah. wrote letters, and that yeah. was perfect for me. Great way to because have a... he was smart and funny, and and he was so smart. Um, and you know, really intellectually challenging, but he was gone. He was gone. Was, Thank God. So that worked out, yeah. you know, pretty yeah. well. Yeah. And then he went to England, which was even better. So you went to England? No, he did. Oh, he did. Yeah, that's even further away. Even better. Yeah. Can't right? can't fool around. And so I didn't really um, spend that much time trying to understand uh, my sexuality at that point. My, I was. But you were you were sort of in love with your roommate. Well, that was in high school. Was before, you know, so high school boyfriend was the one that was in England. Oh, I see. But I was also in love with uh, my best friend in high school, uh-huh. um, who uh, it was like really intense emotional relationship. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I was able to sort of explain that to myself as like we're just you know no one understands. Right. Our, we have an intense. But you know that's also a thing. I uh, think. Of course. I mean, yeah, that's a. It totally is yeah, a thing. Yeah. Um, I remember 
you know, it, there was this dicey period in junior year where um, we were all in, in the AP English class and we were reading Mrs. Dalloway. Uh-huh. Which is like this famous, yeah, you know, lesbian novel. Very important. But book. we just interpreted it as like a version of our friendship, uh-huh, uh-huh. and we were like, "Oh my God, you know, this is this is the first novel that understands our relationship." Yeah. And the other people in the class are kind of like, "Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, yeah." So I, I never, I never actually actively questioned my sexuality in high school. I had alternative explanations. I guess it was a scientific part of me for everything. Like I had this boyfriend. You know, you were smart. You were, you were really capable of rationalizing. Absolutely. Everything. That's that's it's clever. People do Absolutely. that. Absolutely. They're very good. And, at but that. and it wasn't until I went to college and just immediately was just so struck by my roommate. And it was all also so obvious to me at that point that my feelings for her were erotic and uh-huh. not just yeah, emotional. Yeah, that takes it up a level. Yeah. That's a different level. You know, and so that's when sort of the shit hit the fan. Um, before then, I had, you know, I was not worried about it. I was just like, I'm just not a sexual person. I just don't enjoy sex with men and that's no big deal so w- you know? w- was your mind blown open or was it did it seem like this it was is, pretty blown this, open. Is un- this is this is understandable or this was inexorable or this is it, deeply it was part pretty of my blown identity open. Or what? and i remember um uh walking around the streets of of chicago thinking like what am i gonna do and i i could i, ca- I couldn't even imagine telling my parents you know, yeah, I just, just remember gonna... thinking there is no solution to this. There's just no, there's no way that this is going to work. Um, and now, you know, now it's like my life is so completely fine that it's, it, I find it really instructive for me to remind myself of that because I think sometimes the queer community can be really unforgiving of folks who take a long time to come out. Is that true? Yeah, and so uh, I have to remember my really freaked out, you know, 18-year-old self. And I have to, like, consciously remember that feeling of fear. Well, it, it also reminds me of the, the It Gets Better campaign, mm-hmm, you know, that mm-hmm. whole thing that, that seemed like a very important message that, yeah. that, that time... You know, it's part of yeah. this, you know, that, yeah. that, that the time marches on and things mm-hmm. change over time. And it can be hard to see the, the, how things are improving mm-hmm. when you're in it. And also, I mean, the thing that I, I find frustrating now is that, you know, if you're living in a big urban center, things are great. But there's a lot of, you know, queer folks living in Lakeland and Nebraska. Yep, yep, yep. And, and I think the media is like, oh, wow, it's it's cool to be gay now. And I'm like, no, it's not. Yeah. Not for some person, oh my God, you yeah. know, in rural Michigan, it's yeah. not. Yeah. Oh, but, I yeah, mean, the internet totally. has changed everything. I mean, I can't imagine, I probably would have come out so much earlier if the internet had existed. Yeah. You know, with it just, I remember walking to the areas where I, I knew what the gay newspaper in Chicago was and I would go and I would get it and I would bring it home and I would read it cover to cover and then I would rip it up into pieces and take it to a distant trash can to throw it away so that my roommates Do, just could not know. find out. Wow. Wow. How about that? Yeah. I mean, I remember, you know, going to high school in Spokane, Washington, which is a really conservative place, really, really very conservative. And then moving to Seattle and being, and you know, what, 
what, what is happening? What in the hell? And and but 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 my early explanation was that you know, uh, gay people are from big cities. And, and really, it, it was and only really sad. driven like, home when I grew I up to... in L.A. Like, I could have actually had... There's a huge gay community in yeah. L.A., but I didn't know anything about it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And also, when I was growing up, you didn't think about, like, gay as meaning lesbians. You thought of gay as me being gay men. Yeah. You know, that, that time in the 80s, there wasn't as much visibility about women uh, as there was about men. So I just thought of, like, you know... West Hollywood as gay men, yeah, not, right, not right. any women yeah, on your on your mental map, yeah. of the world. Yeah, well, I and 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 it's important for all of us. You you were saying that you know if the internet had existed then that things might have unfolded differently. I think that's really true. People don't realize even by the eighties and nineties, it's still pretty fraught. I mean, I yeah. I remember going to Seattle and trying to find a roommate, and I found a roommate, nice guy. We're talking about, and I learned he was gay. And I said, yeah, I'm not going to be your roommate. This was me. I'm a nice guy. I'm a nice guy that wanted to do the right thing. But but I... I, when, I mean, when I was... One of the things that I have, like, such deep shame about is when I fell in with the community theater crowd when I was around in 10th grade. And so I, again, I was clueless then. I, I, I thought my intense, you know, best friendship was purely platonic. Yeah. And this, this uh, community theater group was um, run by four openly gay men, um, all but one of which died of AIDS. And oh, at that time, I, and, and, and the, the, the guy who was in charge was um, infected at that point and actually had active AIDS, and I didn't know it. Um, but at some point, like I remember when I first got involved with them, I remember making some anti-gay AIDS joke just out of ignorance uh-huh. and not realizing. And like yeah, I remember it was just the other what people did, yeah, and other right? folks were like looking at me, and then someone was like, uh, "Do you realize like all the people in charge are gay men, and one of them does in fact have AIDS?" And I was like, oh, "Oops!" And I think, "Oh my God, here I am, like." Little Miss, like, lesbian poster child, but in 10th grade, I was as ignorant as they came. Yeah. I was as ignorant as everyone around me, and I think it just shows that that stuff is in the culture. Yeah. It's implicit. It's implicit. It's part it's of, it's all part of around the water you. we're swimming in. It's all around you. Yeah. I think that's right. So you realize, you, you, come to, you sort of come to terms with your, your emerging sexuality. In college. In college. What do you what do you do about it? Um, I I ended up there wasn't a lot going on on campus, so I ended up getting involved with the National Organization for Women now, chapter right. in Chicago. Yeah. there was a big chapter in Chicago. Yeah. so I just started showing up to volunteer, and I ended up on the board of directors. You know, as an undergrad. Yeah. Yeah. Holy shit. Uh, well, because, you know... I, How'd and that I, happen? Well, I came to realize, uh, you know, soon after volunteering, that there are a lot of folks who come and go, and there are a lot of folks who are not that committed. So when when someone shows up and they're committed, they, like, grab them. They're like, yeah. okay, you're not flaky. You know, <laughs> we need non-flaky people. Sure. Um, and so that was really great because I was... Just, at that point, I was deciding what I wanted to do with my life, and I'm like, do I want to do activism or do I want to do academia so a lot of the work that I did with Chicago now is was me trying to figure out what I wanted to do uh at that time there was a lot of activism around the abortion issue going on because that was that was right before the big Casey decision 
So uh, I got trained in uh, clinic defense because there, this was clinic the time defense? that which the anti-abortion activists were trying to shut down the clinics. So there was a whole like, you know, all day training where you learned how to physically protect women, how to link arms, how to, you know, how to get women in and out of the clinics. So we did a lot of clinic defense. We did a lot of, you know, policy activism. It this was is all great, early 90s? Yeah, around 90, 90, 91. 91, 92. 91, 92. Yeah. Um, and that was amazing. And that was where I met my first um, lesbian lover. Lesbian who lover. Who was 16 years older than, than I was. Yeah. Which well, is not that uncommon, I think. No, the, it's not that uncommon. I mean, she was pretty freaked out about, like, you know, you're, you know, I'm, I'm like spoiling you and I'm like I'm a willing partner <laughs> it's okay because um, you're what how old are you at that at that point at that point I was 19 19 well so you start to really experience it did you what ha, did you talk to your parents what happened I did um it did not go great it did not go great. my mom well my mom was okay mainly because I was crying And, and she, I think, you know, turned out to sort of be freaking out on the inside, but she did a good job of being like, I love you. You know, I just want you to be happy. My father did not believe me. He thought that it was a political act. And he said, because he was, he was a bit upset that I was like becoming this feminist activist. National organization for women. So he was like, they're just putting ideas in your You don't have to be a zealot. You know, at yeah. some point he called me a zealot. And I'm like, <laughs> it's not really a zealot thing. So that was that was not great. But my sister, wh- who I'm so close to, um, was great. And apparently what happened is she sort of sat my parents down, gave them a talking to, and was like, you know what? This is your older sister? Yeah. It was like, whatever you How guys are older? dealing with, she's two and a half years older. Okay. Whatever you're dealing with, you need to not burden Lisa with this. Yeah, so go ahead, advice. go to therapy, go to PFLAG, work out what you need to work out, but do not share your bad feelings with her. That's go ahead. pretty wise. It is pretty That's wise. wise. So yeah. I was like, afterwards, I'm like, well, I guess, you know, I was a little rocky, but everything went okay. And I found out that like they actually were <laughs> they struggling were thrown into quite turmoil. a bit, well, um, but they kept it to themselves. Yeah. You That's know. what parents parents need to do. That sometimes need yeah. to work it out by themselves. They need to deal with that. Yeah, they did not like my first lover. Uh, she was really butch, and I think that freaked them out. Yeah, that's a little freaky. For, you know, and for... so I think that was part of it. Was they were like, Wah. Um, <laughs> you know. Uh-huh. So, and then I went yeah. to I, when I went to grad school, I met. My current wife, like right away, like and, and that was it. That was at Cornell. That was at Cornell. So you went to. So you got your gra- undergraduate degree in psychology. Yeah. What in? 90- oh, and that was and that was the thing. So the reason I got it in psychology is because my roommate in college, who I was totally in love with, uh, I was. Oh gonna, yeah, we got it. We we we. Yeah, left that's that how thread. we got we got sidetracked. Yeah. So uh, she, I was going to major in anthropology because the. You know, Chicago's got amazing yeah, anthropology. I know. So all the courses that I really liked were in anthropology. And then she announced that she was going to major in anthropology. And I thought it would be bad for our friendship if we had the same major. I thought that would make us competitive. So I'm like, okay, then I'll switch to psychology so that we don't oh, have the damn. same major. You're kidding. And that's why I became a psychologist. And then she ended up switching to psychology too. Oh, so all of that was for What not. a pain in the ass. Yeah. So if I had not been in love with her, I might have been an anthropologist. Well... Anthropology lost out. Yeah. 
There you go. So did and but you, so and how did why did you decide? Kind of at that time, it wasn't. It wasn't, it wasn't like it, what it is now. It, yeah. like, there were boring classes. Like I'm not even sure. I don't know. It was weird. It just shows how random these things but, are. But, but so, how did you decide to? Did you apply widely to grad school, or did um, you? Was I, I Cornell did figure really out because your... I took a year off between graduation and grad school, so I, I didn't feel panicked yet, and I knew that I needed to find like a topic to study. Yeah. And you know, because I was a newly out person. I spent a lot of time in the bookstore, like reading all the books about gay people. Sure. And I discovered a book written by one of the faculty at Chicago, Gilbert Hurt, um, uh, called Children of Horizons. And it was about the uh, adolescent gay youth group in Chicago called the Horizons Project. And that was a time that the gay youth groups did not exist, really. It was just not on people's radar that you could be a gay teen. So this was a revolutionary kind of book. And I was like, oh, my God, like, this is what I want to do. Like, this is new. It's interesting. Like, I don't see a lot of women in these stories. And so that I hooked on that. I was like, okay, that's going to be the thing that I apply to graduate school to do. I want to do stuff on gay youth with a focus on women. It sound, yeah. Wow. No so that really it. that really lit your fire, as yeah. they say. Yeah. And so then I you know, it was hard because there were only two places that had faculty who were doing gay stuff, right? This was a time that two places. Yeah. Uh, and University of Chicago was one of them because Gilbert Hurt right, was there. Right, right. And Did Rich Seven Williams at, at Cornell. Cornell, yeah. And sure. So everywhere else I applied were folks that had stuff doing adolescence, but they didn't have stuff doing like University of Michigan. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and 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 it was just basically for me the decision was: Do I want to have to educate my own advisor about gay stuff, or do I want to go to a place with someone who already kind of knows? Well. The and, landscape and thinking about you know your activism being involved with with now and your sort of activism with regard to your your emerging identity um how did the science fit with that i mean did science seem very mean, compatible with that or did you was there any well, tension I so. there I mean, I, you know, sometimes I, I think that there's tension around those kinds of I, advocacy i grew up in a my you know my father was an academic yeah. He was an academic uh, cardiologist. And starting from when I was like 12 or 13, he would actually give me his journal articles to edit and review, which I didn't. I was like, what? <laughs> I, I didn't even understand he what was journal a, articles he was were. A cardiologist? He was a cardiologist. Um, but, you know, he basically did a whole lot of work on applying. Bayesian statistical methods You're to the kidding. prediction of cardiovascular disease. Shit, that's pretty advanced. It was that's very pretty... advanced. And, you know, it's not just because my father, I'll toot his horn, he sort of revolutionized the field of predictive cardiology. Wow. So, But his papers were really statistical and theoretical, and yeah. I couldn't understand them. Like, why am I them. editing this? Yeah. Why am I and I feel this? like I have no idea. I, I, can't, I don't know what a receiver operating characteristic is, Dad. I don't, I don't, I don't know. I can't read it. <laughs> but he could tell that I had an aptitude for writing and for science, and he wanted to encourage that. So he wanted me to go into academia. He loved that side of me, and, and that was a part of our connection. So... I think a part of me wanted to please him and yeah. wanted to 
be a scientist. And when I discovered that there was sort of a field of scientific research on queer people, it was like, oh, that's me. I can do I'm both. The I can do something that that satisfies the the activist side of me, but it can also be grounded in science because this is a legitimately understudied phenomenon. Yep. Um. And and you know, yeah. Knowledge so is good. I think that's knowledge what, is good. Not that's what knowledge will and help. also, you know, when you're when you're a smart kid and you go to college, you don't really know what to do. Like I didn't really know what jobs were out there. Yeah. Um in the year between graduating and going to grad school, I was working at the University of Chicago's um basically rape crisis center. And wow, you- that was just really kind of frustrating and didn't feel very helpful because there was there was like a gang rape that was not being dealt with very effectively by the administration. So I felt like, wow, I'm not really able to do anything, you know, of value. Like here I am, this activist, and I'm failing at you know a- advocacy and activism. I think I'll go back to the safe world of books and yeah. and deep thoughts. Uh-huh. Um, yeah. So you get to Cornell. Do you do you do you meet Judy right away? Um, I met Judy within like two weeks. Holy crap. Yep. That's, wow. Yeah. That settled that. Wasted no time. Good, I guess. I mean, that, I don't know. And it was interesting. At that time, people did not go to graduate school to work on gay stuff. Um, it was, you know, most not, of the, I mean, it, seemed, it would have been very specialized. Well, it was not, well, not even that. It was just stigmatized. It yeah, wasn't was really, it stigmatized? it's hard to remember now how dangerous it was and rich seven williams my advisor you know ended up telling me that that when my application came in he had been about to retire early because since he had you know he was a full professor and he had shifted to doing work on you know queer youth and basically people stopped applying to work with him no graduate students wanted to touch it with a 10-foot wow so he was like, well, if this is the way, and he had gotten a re-specialization in clinical, so he had started seeing, you know, he was doing research, but he was also seeing uh, clients, and he was thinking, you know, I, I can think I'll I can just... apply my my knowledge and skills in a different way. Yeah, and he was like, I think I'm just going to leave the whole academic thing behind, and then he said, like, I was in that thought process, and your application came in, and I was like, wow, a graduate student is willing to actually do gay research? Like, wow and so he's like okay i'll try this out a little longer and then he ended up you know he just recently retired so he ended up you know staying and doing like some amazing work over the past 20 years and so i, you sa- I always you say to him it. i'm like i saved your career yeah well you saved saved it for all of us because it was just it really was uh that uncommon and you know because it was a small niche uh i felt really uh, isolated from the other graduate students. Yeah. Uh, because I would go to the big conferences like Society for Research on Child Development and APS, and there wasn't anything uh, going on with regard to sexual orientation or, or LGBT issues. And so I just felt like I'm doing something that no one else cares about. And, you know, when you go to these conferences, you see all these hardworking graduate students wearing little suits and carrying their posters and they know exactly who to talk to. They're like, 
already angling for the jobs they're going to get or the postdocs. <laughs> and I just it's felt kind like... Of, it's kind of... It was, it was very intimidating. And yeah, I just felt like yeah, I'm yeah. not a part of that, that world too. at all because <laughs> the work I'm doing, no one's going to hire. Like, I'm just not a part of this world. And I came close to quitting, you know, at several yeah. times because I would go to these conferences and I found it so demoralizing. And I was like, there's no way... There's no way I'm going to succeed at this. Well, you know, it's you know it's really funny or maybe not fun. Maybe this isn't funny. Maybe this is this is more saddish. But I didn't identify. I mean, when I thought about Lisa Diamond and Lisa Diamond's work, I thought about attachment and you know, attachment and bonding and attachment and health and so I mean, I didn't think about sexuality until I'd known you well, for a while. Well, what's interesting longer. is that I found that like, you know, because I started doing the attachment stuff, there's sort of like I have two sets of colleagues. Some know a lot about the attachment stuff I do uh-huh. and like had no idea about the sexuality stuff. Some know about the sexuality stuff and have no idea about the attachment stuff. So I always felt like I, in some ways I had these like dual sets of colleagues right. that didn't necessarily, you know, uh, interact with each other. But one of the reasons that I, and I, you know, when I got to know Cindy Hazan and started doing the attachment stuff, you know, I, I, I was so passionate about it, but I remember Rich was like, well, it's really good that you're, that you're interested in this because you need something more mainstream. Right. You need something other funny? than the gay stuff. Isn't that so interesting? And I'm glad that you actually are interested in this and that you're not just doing right, it right, right, because right. you need it. But the truth is that you do need it. Well, and there's also a very important way in which we need to understand attachment processes in sexuality, right? Yeah. And, and at that time, there still, wasn't, there still wasn't a lot little, of crosstalk yeah, for that. Well, hardly, um, hardly so when, any and exists I, to this day. I believe that I would not have gotten the job at Utah if I had only been doing the gay stuff. I yeah. think it was the fact that I was doing both because I was hired in a joint appointment position. I'm a joint appointment with gender studies. So the psychology folks really liked the attachment stuff. The gender studies program really liked the, were the you a, queer did, stuff. Were you, were, you a joint, were you jointly hired right from the beginning? Right from the beginning. The, the position was a joint appointment. Wow. Um, and That's pretty... I mean, University of Utah. I right? know. You think about going from the frying pan into the fire... I was so doubtful, and so was Judy, um, you know, who had... Yeah. Who, you know, where's she from? She's actually from uh, Los Angeles as well. Okay. But we met, so you she's, know... Yeah, you meet in Cornell. It was, That's it was, it, But it's strange. worked out well because it makes the holidays you know, easier. <laughs> um, and she was... She had gotten her master's in history and then decided she didn't want to do academia. So she was still kind of casting about for what she wanted to do. And she's like, Utah? Really? Exactly. Salt Lake City? Exactly. This is, this is, this is our destiny? She was very doubtful yeah, about it. Yeah, I would be too. Um, she had done all this research. She's like, there's only one job there that I can imagine wanting. But she got it. Um, <laughs> That's good. And then she, her career ended up really taking off, you know. Uh-huh. And, and so it... It ended up being a, a good fit, and I cannot, I literally cannot believe that I've been there uh, for 17 years. 17 years. It, it's like, what happened? Yeah. You know, I truly, but it's an amazing place. You know, you talk about, like, queer migration. Every gay person in the state of Utah, and some of them from Idaho, come and live in Salt Lake City. Because Salt Lake City is is a refuge mm-hmm. in the or sort of a regional refuge. Most regions have one or two yep. of those. You know, Tucson and is sort of and, like and that in Arizona. And we ended up on the list of like one of the top ten gay places to live, like in America. So really, there's a huge queer community there, 
And it's totally, and of course, working at the university, everybody at the university is from someplace else. Yeah. They're all completely progressive. Yeah. And it's been um, totally awesome to and work there. So, so where did your, where has your research, I mean, so now when I think of, of Lisa Diamond, pr- predominant, I mean, I, I think about your certain attachment papers that I always mm-hmm. cite and talk about with my students, you know, like, you know, sort of a regulatory system that attachment brings and bonding creates. Um, but what I really think of these days is, is this concept of sexual fluidity, mm-hmm. which was one of the things that really surprised me. I mean, you know, by that time, though, by the time I'm getting surprised by this work, I'm enlightened you know, I'm fully enlightened about sex. You know, I'm like, like I under, I'm, I'm down good with, the with gays. I'm down. My, some of my best friends are the gays, whatever. And then it's like, you know, and then what but are the wait gays? a minute. What, what, yeah, right, Who exactly. are the gays? Exactly. Then, then uh, you know, the ground under under even my progressive feet start start mm-hmm. starts becoming very uncertain when I think about the idea that people change. And I and I, and, I, and I started. I mean, I thought I. I think I sort of responded not negatively at first to that. I mean, because you know, I was, I'm not opposed to this in any way, well, but I, but I was sort of surprised for a while. The progressive, what seemed to be the progressive opinion, is like, I know gays are born that way. It's not a choice. Like, let's you know, it's a very sort of ethnic model. Well, of and even among gayness. the people that I knew who Absolutely. were gay all, all my adult life, you know, that that I've I've often felt that even within the the sort of queer community there's a kind of outsider mm-hmm. status to bisexuality mm-hmm. for example mm-hmm. and and people have talked about that a little bit i don't really understand it you know at a visceral level but i understand it at a conceptual it's, it's one a, i think a lot of minority communities have a lot of boundary policing that goes on yeah i think it's true for uh, you know ethnicity it's true for religion there's always a lot of boundary policing i think that's a part of any marginalized group's coping mechanism. Yeah. Are you in or are you out? And, you know, and, and so I think that's where that sort of came from. But I think some of the fervor around the boundary policing is energized by the very fact that, that those boundaries are permeable. And everyone knows it, and, and, and that's and why it makes it so makes scary. It makes it uncomfortable. Like, uncomfortable. Anything that's uncomfortable, we just want to d- make that go away. Yeah. So, so tell me about this sample that, yeah, that, so, that, I mean, that this led you like to the, these conclusions. This was it's just the like the most sample. the most terrible, terribly organized um, master's thesis project in God, the history. It goes of, back to your masters. Yeah, yeah. So I basically, that? I land at Cornell, and Rich didn't have any existing samples. That or you know most graduate students go and they and they, their advisor has a research project that they start working. Yeah, on. yeah, yeah. Well, Rich, you know, didn't you yeah, know because whoops. he was thinking about leaving it. You right. know, so he didn't have any data for me to work with. And he's like, "Well, what are you? What do you want to do?" And I'm like, "Well, you know, all of these studies of sexual identity development are on men, and and largely it was because samples were recruited by just going to like community groups, right? And you know those." those groups always drew more men than women. That's so interesting. And so I, I only found I like one study that had any women in it and it was like 10 women or something. <laughs> and I was like, wow, okay, I'm supposed to find a topic that no one's doing. And like, my, that will be my thing. Like, where are women's voices? Where are women's experiences? Yeah. I was like, Rich, I just want to interview a bunch of women and like see what, you know, what their process of identity development is. And he was like, okay. 
Um, and I've, <laughs> I've it, joked with him like, huh? since then. I've been like, okay. how could you let me do this crazy project? Like, where, you know, why weren't you forcing me to have like more clear? And he's like, well, I think you did okay. Yeah. So like, obviously it was not such a disaster. Um, but uh, I really, I. He's going to love that characterization. I did not have him. a lot of clear ideas about what I wanted to do. Um, I just knew I wanted to interview women and just sort of, you know, get... But how did you... So you just came up with your own line of questioning, you know, like, yeah. like oral history interviews or yeah, what? Yeah, yeah. I just looked at the... Did, was, I, was, I looked at the very were small they all literature. They were open-ended were, oh, No, I had... You know, they were, yeah, they were pretty open-ended. You did questionnaires. I had questions. You I did, had, did you do like, like attachment scales and things no, like that? No, because that, I started the project before I discovered that. attachment oh, theory. Oh, got it. Okay. Like I didn't, yeah. even, you know... Yeah. And so basically... I just wanted to know the the process through which women start to question their sexuality. And, and you again, you was, had to f- seek out I had to find the women women who identified at well, time one. I didn't I didn't as, want them to necessarily lesbian? identify. I just said they just have to have some form of same sex attraction. So, I didn't so require that's them to identify. Open-ended. So basically, and the internet didn't exist. So I was like, how am I going to find these women? And Rich was like, well, they're they're pretty big, you know, communities in like Syracuse and Rochester. So, and I didn't have a car. So I bought a used car for $5,000. Wow. Um, a, a 1989 Toyota Corolla that I still have. Stop it. still I'll runs. cut it out. Oh. What are you talking about? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It's, we call it the Firebird <laughs> because it's actually been on fire, <laughs> but it's still running. Uh, and basically, I, every good. single weekend, <laughs> I would drive to Syracuse or Rochester or Binghamton or Elmira or Freeville, and I would go to places that had coffee shops, um, anything where there were, you know, gay community where I thought young women might be, and I would just physically walk up to people and be like, Are you I'm doing me? a study about... You just um, ask them about their sexuality? Yeah. I was like, I'm doing this interview study. I had no money. Yeah. That's I was a lot like, of legwork. I'm doing work. this interview study, you that's know. Not, that's and, not uh, messing around. And Judy and I, you know, because we were a new couple, so she would actually sometimes come with me to recruit people, and she was way better at it than I was. She, she has no fear. She'd just walk up to people, <laughs> and, and she'd be like, I found you like five more. And I'm like, <laughs> what? <laughs> angrily uh, and so then i would you. schedule the interviews and then i would kind of drive back and do like 10 interviews in a day you know in a, in a particular location wow. and just drive back and forth drive back and forth drive back and forth drive back and forth oh my god uh, and Lisa, it was as it was a grad just like student and you're taking classes ground. and you're you know eating you know eating top rice ramen. and top ramen i remember the eating a lot of um sweet potatoes because sweet i could potatoes, eat them they're nutritious, while i right? was driving and I could munch them in one hand while driving the car. You could munch? What, you didn't cook them? You no, know, I cooked them in the microwave, but then I would eat them like an apple. Really? You know? Yeah. Holy just, crap. Just nuke them and then wrap that's, them in tinfoil. That's a little crazy. Well, um, I, you know, I would say that's a little... That qualifies... That crosses it was a good, over the line. It was line a good portable food. Into crazy a little bit. It was a good bit. portable food. Yeah. I guess that's true. So, it, you know, so I, I did the interviews and I knew I wanted to follow folks over time but I didn't really have a clear plan on that. And so, you know, it just sort of emerged spontaneously. But I, I just recently have been doing the 20-year follow-up interviews. 20 years. 20 year. years. 
That's amazing. And what's hilarious, and people from are like, this, how from did this you? Little, and I only you know, you lost. Think, but I, gotta, I just have to process this for a second. Can I do that? for? I just mm-hmm. have to process. Because when I think about a, a 20-year longitudinal study, I think of a multi-center NIH. I know. You know gigantic fucking, you know. But it's a small you know, number of women. Millions of dollars with multiple, you know, PIs. And, you know, and, and you're talking about. A, a, One person. No money. No funding. And I think the reason that I haven't lost folks is because it's always me. Yeah. I never had anybody else do the They know you. They know me. They and trust what's, you. What's been sort of gratifying over the years is, you know, because I was a grad student when I started. I was close in age to a lot of the participants. And so when I, when I call them, you know, every couple of years, they're like, so what's going on with you? So you have a job. Like, you're at Utah. <laughs> I saw you on the, the web. Like, I'm so proud of you. <laughs> you know, so the pa- there's not a big power imbalance, yeah. I think, the way there is, because I was young and naive when I started it. And so they feel proud of me. And when they're, I when I published the book, I sent them all a copy of the book. Oh, that's nice. They're and like your collaborators, in a way. Exactly. I mean, they're, exactly. They're, all they have to do is be honest. Yeah. And so, so at what point do you realize that people are not being consistent in their reporting? Well, when I asked women to talk about some of their earliest attractions, a lot of them were distra- describing these really passionate friendships similar to the one that I had in high school uh-huh. with, my, with my best friend. And I would be like, well, you know, were you attracted to her? And they'd be like, no, I, I really wasn't. And I was like, wow, because, you know, similarly, because I, I wasn't really aware of feeling like, erotically attracted to my best friend in high school. It was the one in college. You were just drawn. It was like we were really like we were in a romantic relationship with one another. Yeah. And And adolescence is so intense anyway. Yeah. It would be easy to And so that was that was the first thing that struck me was that there was something that we we were all assuming that those romantic feelings always co occurred with sexual feelings. And it was clear to me from the interviews that that wasn't the case. And that's why I sought out Cindy Hazan because I was like trying to understand this and she introduced me to attachment theory and I started doing all this reading. I'm like, oh, they're attachment bonds. They're just not sexual attachments. Right. They're more analogous to parental attachment right, bonds. Right. And so she introduced me to sort of a framework that helped me make sense of the fact that there were these romantic relationships between women that had all of the signature features of romantic attachments, the uh, uh, obsessive proximity seeking, the separation distress, the safe haven, they just weren't sexual. Uh, And it was, you know, maybe a developmental thing. And that was, you know, the big sort of aha moment. Well, and also you're catching these, these young women basically still as adolescents. Yeah. Yeah. So, and the so, age range was 16 to 23. Right? So so adolescence is a time, I mean, you know, in, in attachment terms where you're where you're really your world is turning upside down because and those you're, systems you're sort of haven't cutting those gotten early integrated yet. Yeah, right. you're in this transitional thing where you you have to rebuild you have a social to rebuild set it. of attachments and and that's terrifying. And right? for you most, need to latch and on. And for most adolescents, their first full-fledged attachment figure that's not their parent is a romantic partner but these girls had sort of figured out a sort of transition that their first romantic their first attachment figure other than a parent 
was their best friend. And, and it just wasn't a sexual relationship. That, I mean, I think about Eleanor Maccabee's stuff uh, uh, about how girls... Same-sex friendships. Same-sex friendships, how yeah. they, they're, they're, they're sort of nicer yeah. for, for girls. They're safe. For girls especially, right? Because boys are kind of a pain in the ass. I mean, you know, I, mean, I don't yeah. want to be too generalizing. You know, boys have their own... I think version of this, yeah. But the but the 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 enculturation and the way the way things go, they're not oriented towards. And they don't that get sort of they don't get the same sort behavior. of cultural permission. They don't. That's right. So they have their own issue there. So you know. So I ended up designing my dissertation around female friendships to try to sort of you know that was make very that, ahead of its time. But it was Holy a total shit. failure. It was like the worst dissertation ever, <laughs> and nothing ever got published from it. And it was yeah. like a complete bust. Yeah, that's how that happens. Sometimes. You know. And but so it's odd. It's like the work that I ended up publishing more and getting more known for was my master's thesis research yeah and the dissertation just sort of you know died I, you know i published my master's thesis and i never ever ever published would never publish my shitty dissertation and i always tell that to graduate students to sort of reassure them i'm like it's just another study yeah it's not going to be the last study you do so yeah. don't try and make it your be all and yeah. all yeah. you know it may not you know work out but it was the dissertation that got me into psychophysiology because I, I was using uh, really bad psychophys methods to try and, and sort of test the difference between romantic relationships and best friendships. So then when I get hired at Utah, that's a good, that's a good idea. They're though. like, Oh, well you're, you're, you're you know, you want to set up a psychophys lab. And yet I had never been trained in it. Like we didn't, the, the psychophys measures that Cindy Hazan was using were basically the heart rate monitors that runners buy. <laughs> it, it was it was just heart rate. There and was nothing they weren't else. they weren't so great then. No, they weren't. So, and so I didn't know. I mean, and it was my dad who was like, you know, you really need separate measures of the sympathetic and the parasympathetic nervous system. Yep. I'm like, oh, and I was like, wow, I'm like trying to get into this field, and yet I'm not being trained by people who know anything about it. So when I landed at Utah, it was just luck because. Tim Smith was there, Bertuccino uh, was there, uh, and you know, and they're like, "You're going to benefit a lot from being here." And they just supported me completely. I had to set up the psychophys lab, having never actually collected valid psychophys data ever. So I just hit the books and was completely 100% self-taught on on everything because I never had any training in it. And what, at all. what kind of stuff do you start finding? Um, my right away, I mean, I was very, I became really interested in the emerging research on emotion regulation and the uh -huh. parasympathetic nervous system, the whole porges and, yeah. and vagal, vagal tone. Stuff. And so I quickly was like, wait, this, this all suggests that attachment security should be related to, you know, vagal tone. And, and I, I couldn't understand why I couldn't find any research on attachment theory and psychophysiology other than like one chapter that was on like kids getting, you know, in the strange situation. And that was, you know, what I really wanted to do. So I ended up writing a review paper on, I'm like, wow, either, either I'm, you know, you know, is it, is it possible that I'm the first person who's seeing why this is relevant? And it turned out that that was sort of true. Like yeah. no one was doing it in adults. There was stuff yeah, on yeah, yeah. kids. Right. So I wrote this uh, review paper that basically was a way to sort of force myself to really articulate, okay, like where, where am I going with this? Like, it, you know, if I'm going to commit to this, like I need to make sure I'm not going down a rabbit hole. So a part of it was just me boning up on it. And, but that sort of 
served as the framework for what I ended up doing, which was looking for associations between vagal tone and vagal withdrawal and attachment uh, insecurity. And which, what, what, what was the bottom line there? I mean, is it vagal... So does attachment security increase parasympathetic tone? That well, sort of thing? yeah. So individuals who are insecurely or is it go the attached, other way? who are individuals who are insecurely attached, have lower vagal tone, which is exactly what you would expect yeah. if attachment insecurity creates some is a sort of problems. is some form of regulatory deficit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah. that was true, and yeah. so you know that was the the first thing I found, and then since then I've I've found other manifestations of that in, in other ways in terms of looking at couples and looking at how individuals who have low, lower vagal tone have different sorts of reactions to their partner's negative affect uh-huh. and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, but all of that was on like heterosexual couples. So right. I was still doing the gay yeah, stuff yeah, yeah. and I was doing this attachment stuff. I basically had two different careers yep. going on yep. and two different sets of colleagues. But because I had a joint appointment in gender studies, it was okay. And uh, my biggest insecurity early on at Utah was that someone was going to say to me at some point, either you're a qualitative sexuality researcher, or you're a quantitative psychophysiologist who does attachment, like, pick one, right? Pick, pick a direction, because right now you're all over the map. But to me, they were always deeply Wait, connected. Wait, someone, someone did say that? No, to no, or, that was no, my fear. That was your fear. That was my yeah, fear. That, yeah, that, that doesn't seem to have happened. And I, I mean, no. I really... And I remember when I was writing my third year statement before my third year review, really trying to like articulate why these were both actually what, connected. Figure out what the nexus is. Yeah. And I think from that, a, lot, a big part of that was the psych review piece on, you know, on, on the links between attachment and sexuality. Yeah, great, but that for me stuff. was like, I needed Holy to shit. publish that to show that these were not two different lines of research. Yeah. They were actually connected if I could just, you know, explain how they were connected. Well, and, and you know, there's, there's sort of a meta-scientific aspect to this too because by the time you're doing the, the, the psychophys attachment stuff, there's a big giant literature on attachment and a big giant literature on psychophysiology and and you know me- measuring parasympathetic tone and what it's associated with in terms of self-regulatory cap- capabilities and on and on. But there's not that much. There's not that much about about sexuality yeah. and sexual identity formation, all that stuff. And and one of the things that I mean, even Popper wrote about was that you have to develop the hypotheses. You got you to figure out what you well, what, what to look at. Well, I was always shocked by the fact that, because I always would attend the IARR meetings, the International Association of Relationship Research, and every year, other year they would be international. And I would always attend the International Academy of Sex Research. Yeah. And they also alternated. And I, I, I was always shocked by the fact that I was the only person who was at both meetings. I'm like, don't the relationships people... Uh. Want to know about sexuality? God, it's and still don't such the a sexuality problem. people want to know about relationships? Uh, and I kept geez. thinking, oh, I'm sure next year I'll see some of the same people. I'm like, no, no. Like, what's going I mean, the fields were very segregated. And I think a part of it is a sort of um, uh, a squeamishness about sexuality among the relationship is it better? researchers. Has it gotten Not better? Not that much Not better. Not that much better, really. I mean, I gave a talk at the IARR meeting um, in Israel called Where's the Sex in Relationship Research. Yeah. Um, And, you know, I I was saying to folks, you know, we have these 36-item measures of conflict 
Yeah. And then the measure of sexual satisfaction would be like, are you satisfied? Yeah. Okay. All right. That's all we need to know. And I'm right. like, um, no. And forget psychophys. You yeah. know, there's no, there's, you know, applied to sexuality. Oh, Nothing man. about there's, like what you do, yeah. how you negotiate. You know, your sexual practices. But see, that's what I'm saying. That's why you need to have these more open-ended qualitative approaches because yeah. you, you're, you're gathering clues as to where to, where to look more quantitatively, mm-hmm. systematically mm-hmm. down the mm-hmm. road. You really need to build that foundation. And, but, so, so I want to pivot a little bit because I really want to get back to what sexual fluidity is. What did you discover it is? And, and it sounds like you've been using the attachment framework to explain it a little bit, but I want yeah. to just... What so is the it? way I would describe it and sort of what sort of happened as I started doing follow-up interviews around every two years with my respondents was I would find that their sexual identity labels kept changing. And I found that a lot of them were engaging in relationships that didn't match their pattern of attraction. So some of the women who were like, oh, I'm 95% attracted to women. Then I talked to them two years later. They're like, well, I started sleeping with my male best friend. And I'd be like, well, okay. Yeah, that's a, that's a pretty what's, big change. Uh, what's what the going on there? Going on? And it was clear from talking to them that it wasn't like they were going back in the closet or they were repressed. They were, all my respondents were really open and like, you know, you know they were not deluded or repressed. So that standard explanation of, oh, you're just going back into the closet or you're, it's false consciousness. You Drawing don't know what you want. Yeah. Sort of Instead, they were like, well, this relationship just really kind of blew my mind. And so again, I was really drawn to, the, to this notion of attachment that there is something about specific relationships that can be so compelling that it draws women into erotic feelings that they didn't have before. In, um, in for for either for either gender. direction, yeah. Because I also was talking to women who I was interviewing who were like, "I'm I think I'm pretty heterosexual, but I just started sleeping with my female best friend, and I don't know where that came from." And then I would talk <laughs> to them two years later, and they'd be like, "Yeah, I'm back with men," and I'd be like, "So were you deluded? Were you?" And they'd be like, "I don't know. It was just that, that was one a woman. thing that happened. That was a thing that happened, and I did it. Was it. a thing that and, happened. Now, and did so, you did you was there like confusion or shame or i was totally i mean yeah for them there was a lot of confusion a lot of shame i think especially for the women who had been identified as lesbian who started relationships with men the lesbian community was like get out you know so Ah. some of them have coming from all directions yeah yeah and i think that's changed a lot since then but at that time it, it it was really fraught for for a lot of these individuals, which was part of what, you know, as I started to do the research, became really compelling to me because invariably the women who had those sorts of experiences felt that they were the only one. They were like, one woman actually said to me, I feel like I'm a bad example of a lesbian, so if you don't want to continue interviewing me, that's fine because I don't want to, I don't want to mess up your study. Uh, and I was like, oh my God, you don't this realize is my study. Yeah. I'm like, you don't realize how common you actually are. Yeah. And so that was something that struck me right away was that all of them seemed to think they were the only one yeah. having this sort of more fluid experience. And that, I was like, oh my God, I think our whole, our whole model of what's normal and what's exceptional is reversed. 
because because the the fluidity was the norm. Yeah. Right. I mean, it was relatively rare that people were that people all were in really, one really direction consistent. or all in the other. And so I was like, oh my god, we've got this completely wrong. That's like, fucking. Completely that's amazing. Upside down. Do you know that that's amazing? And early on, the thing is, early on. You know, when I was publishing the first, you know, from the first couple rounds of, of follow-up data, people were like, well, you know, you've got this weird sample and it's a small sample. And I was like, I, I totally get that. And they're like, you know what, I, I, you may be on to something, but it's probably not that big of a phenomenon as your sample is making it seem like. Right. You've got a weird sample. It's, it's what, and so now I feel so women? validated because now we have these unbelievable representative studies the National Longitudinal Study of Adolescent Health, uh, studies longitudinal studies from New Zealand, and they've all shown the same thing. And I'm like, I was right. It wasn't just my tiny, like, my you're tiny right. I had this tiny Cornell, sample, but I was not wrong about the phenomenon. Yeah. And now I feel, so now when I give talks, I present all the big data because I'm like, see, I wasn't crazy. I yeah, was not right. crazy. It, because especially in the current climate, it's a little bit nerve wracking, you know, to, to, but you know, your sample wasn't that small. Well, it was, it was what, over a hundred with, 100 with multiple, with, with, you know, a decade of, well, you know, two that decades is a small now. and it's like, you know, completely snowball sample. So, I mean, sure. I totally get that, but you know, I also feel that, um, there is a role for small sample research. And I feel oh, like comple- ab- that absolutely. my study is, yeah. a, is an example of the fact that you need that sort of work for hypothesis generation. Yes. And you need That's it right. to be able to figure out what questions to ask. So certainly I, I never expected it to be the last word on anything, but you, the only way to get some, some of the information that we need is through that more intensive, small sample work. Yeah. And you know, that, that has no funding and that is cheap to do and that, you know, you just kind of well, pull it out of your, your, you know, out of your hat. And, and, and is there any evidence that there are sex differences in this? And I mean, is well, this initially I really men? thought there were initially, I was like, this is like a female phenomenon, but I think largely I'm starting to, to doubt that because I've started collecting data from men and they're showing some of the same kind of variability that, I used to think was more common in women. So I, I, I kind of feel like the jury is out on that. I yeah. used to think that women were the way more fluid than men. the common story is that women are, are more Yeah, and I was know, a part of that common fluid. story. I was, yeah. a part of the, I was one of the people, pro, you know, right. making that argument. And that, that men, and there's more of a genetic uh, and component it, and it might in males. Be, it might be that there is, you know, more fluidity in women than men, but I think the size of that gender difference is, is an open, empirical question. Yeah. That's just amazing stuff. I mean, women have had more cultural permission to dabble in same-sex yep. sexuality than men yep. have. Um, and so that gives them more opportunities to sort of figure out. But what about the historical record? I mean, I, you know, I've heard, for example, of you know ancient Greek culture being the opposite. Yeah, you yeah. Know, I don't know whether the, there's anything. I don't know what... I mean, I have no... I literally no idea what the evidence is for any of those well, I, I think a lot of that just shows like that sexuality... The Iliad or something. I mean, other cultures... You know, it's only the contemporary West that has linked same-sex behavior and attraction rigidly to an idea of a fixed orientation. Yeah. You know, you find same-sex sexuality in every culture that you look at, but it, it coexists with normal heterosexual... Uh-huh. Behavior And so, 
it's only relatively recently that we think about it as a trait of a person. Right. And so how they explain it is kind of up to every culture. Is it just men being horny? Is it a form of male friendship, which was true in a lot of cultures? So you find different versions of it, you know, across history and across different cultures. And, you know, in some cultures, for example, the penetrating male, the active partner, is not considered gay. You know, it's only the passive partner who is considered gay. So Mm. it's like, yeah, you can engage in as much same-sex behavior as you want. As long as you are the penetrator, that's a totally heterosexual male role. Well, and there's, there's, it seems to me that there's also ample space for other sort of sexual behaviors that are not, you know, fully penetration, yeah, right? Yeah, you know, yeah. I, I remember reading one, one of the one of the surprising things. And of I course, read, Bill I read, Clinton would say they're not sex. So you know, <laughs> I remember reading uh, uh, Christopher Hitchens' autobiography. Do you know what I'm yeah. referring to? Yeah. And and I mean, Christopher Hitchens is this sort of like chest pounding neocon yeah. guy, and he and he there's all kinds of stuff in there about mm-hmm. about engaging in sexual behavior with uh, with boys. Um, all through his adolescence and and describing that this was utterly normative mm-hmm. at least f- in his recollection mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. this was not this was and not a lot a, of folks think we like all oh, the the boarding school yeah. circle jerks and yeah, stuff right, like that right right you know so i think that that there's a lot of space for individuals to interpret attractions and behaviors in a lot of different ways depending on the context yeah. and uh, we are relatively unique as a culture in that we take any sign of, of same-sex sexuality and we say, that must be an indicator of something permanent about you. Yeah. And the truth is that sometimes it is, and sometimes it isn't. And maybe the truth is that often it isn't. Yeah. Often it's yeah. just, but, but you know... I, sexuality is uh, a pretty uh, flexible system. Think about, I mean, the people, you always hear about people being like, well, I can't reach orgasm unless I think about some particular thing. And it'll be something kind of crazy. And we're like, wow, obviously, sexuality is a pretty flexible system. You know, that, that you've learned something at some point that gets integrated into your mind. Yeah. And, you know, so clearly cognition and exposure play a role in helping to set sexual trajectories yeah so why are we so surprised you know by that amount of fluidity it's like clearly we're we're not you know like the animals that literally cannot mate unless right. they are you know ovulating right we are a no pretty that's complicated the, species. If, you, if you i was saying to to someone maybe eli uh, a little while ago that um you know if you look if you look f- if you try to find real unequivocal generalizations about human behavior it's just really fucking hard to do you can't the rule for humans is flexibility yeah and, because and that's, that's what's adaptive because of our large exactly. brains that's and because we, we lived in diverse did. environments we, we created this capability over phylogeny to uh, flexibly adapt to all kinds of conditions yeah. and that yeah. means that you know not only sexuality but but brought mating strat you know like monogamy you know all of these other things that we sort of on one camp or another, we want to say is is a and fixed it's, it's trait. It's also true with um, stress sensitivity, which I think is so interesting that all this research showing that exposure to early adversity um, can render children sort of set their the development of their stress response systems to be uh, hypersensitive. And that hypersensitivity is adaptive, right? Because if you are living in a dangerous environment, you need to be hypervigilant. Yeah. Uh, and that hypervigilance actually makes them more sort of absorbent of good environments as well yeah. as bad. Yeah, yeah. So 
we as a species have evolved mechanisms to take in what kind of environment am I in? And, to, and, the, and the body changes. It's not just a, you know, a behavioral change. There are physiological changes that yeah. occur. And that's what I find you know, so fascinating. I guess one, I, I have really one more thing I really wanted to, to ask you, which is given this almost dizzying array of flexibility, fluidity, of difficulty typologizing individuals. Where does that leave us politically? Well, it's interesting. That's part of what I'm going to talk about. You know, I I think that the gay community has made a huge mistake in using the fixedness of sexual orientation as the grounds for civil rights by saying, we're born this way, so it's not our fault, and please love and accept us. Um, that, first of all, is just scientifically wrong. There Whoa. are definitely biological contributions, but they're not deterministic. Right. The like anything of, that, that I know. It's influence. like any, any, any geneticist is like, that's a stupid thing to say about anything. <laughs> but it's, again, it's like the way science gets popularized. Right. Um, for political so, reasons. For political reasons. So A, it's, it's just wrong. And there's enough data on change now to show that it's just completely whacked. B... It's actually You're going to catch not, hell for that. You know, I don't, that, that's the point. Like, I feel like at this point in my career, I need to, like, I always joke with my partner. I'm like, I've, you know, I have job security. I'm like, I need to use my power for good and not <laughs> evil. So if, if anyone's going to catch hell for it, I'm safe. Go ahead. Yeah, throw it. Good. So, good. B, it's, so A, it's wrong. B, it's actually unnecessary. I partnered up with a, an, a brilliant colleague of mine in the law school at the University of Utah, Cliff Roski, who does work on sort of LGBT legal stuff. Uh-huh. And if you actually look at the decisions, the immutability of sexual orientation has not actually been a factor right. in all the legal victories. We, we think it is, but it, it's actually not. Um, so we, we think that it's helping us, and it's, it actually hasn't been that important because the, there are so many other grounds on which those decisions have been made, and it wasn't a factor in the, in the most recent what is? Supreme Court victory. Usually it's, it's the fact that animus against any particular group is not constitutional. So if, if you know, regardless of whether it's immutable or not, if a law appears to be it's just motivated wrong. by animus, it's just, it's just wrong. wrong. Just, just, and that was the basis for the Lawrence versus Kansas decision. very good also, uh, laws against LGBT discrimination are often founded on the sex discrimination history. Yeah, that yeah. It ends up being a form of sex discrimination yeah. to, to discriminate against like same-sex marriage. Immutabil- and in terms of the equal protection statutes, um, immutability is one of the list of things that folks can cons- that the Supreme Court can consider in, in whether or not a law is constitutional, but it's not the only one. Yeah. History of discrimination is another one. Um, so, so it's, again, it's like, it hasn't been, you know, it's, it's one of several things that can be considered. Another is that courts have changed their definition of immutability from a trait that cannot change to a trait that is so central to a person's sense of self that it would be wrong to make them change it. Yeah. So even the definition of immutability from the court's perspective is not what most of us think it is. Yeah. So for all these reasons, We've just been on the wrong road. And then the final thing, which is, which, you know, for me is the most important take home message is that it is simply unjust to the, you know, the entirety of the queer community to make 
the fixedness of your uh, sexual same-sex sexuality a condition for your rights. Yeah. Because it marginalizes bisexual individuals. And it'll wind up doing it more damage again. It marginalizes the kind of women in my study who had one same-sex relationship that there shouldn't be some litmus test for rights where it's like, well, if you're a stable lesbian... You're allowed to be protected by the laws. But if you're someone who had just one same-sex relationship, you don't deserve your rights. It sets up a hierarchy of, you know, queerness. And, you know, there was basically any civil rights strategy needs to protect the entire population. Yeah. And so this notion that fixed patterns of sexual orientation are worthy of respect and others are not, it's just antithetical to any sort of movement for self-respect so that the correct answer to like oh you know are people born this way or are they not that's an interesting scientific question like it's one of my sure interesting scientific questions but it has no role in public policy debates <laughs> it's like a so what it's like it doesn't matter Amen. how you Amen got to, that. to be the, either we're a society that protects the privacy of individuals to determine their intimate lives or we're not no one ever asked during loving versus virginia are some people born like attracted to people of the other race. Right. No right. one no one cares right. why you want to marry someone is, of is another this, race. This do you have the right to, to make your own marriage choice or do you or not? not? Yeah, yeah, right. yeah. We don't yeah. care why, like, are some people born loving black people? I mean, like that's that would be a ridiculous <laughs> question. No one would ever think to ask yeah. that question. These people want, are in love now. Yeah. Is the only question. How you got there is a, is an interesting scientific question, but it absolutely should have no role in the public policy debate at all. And so I feel like part of my mission now is to try and make that point because I'm so tired of, of seeing the science be bastardized. I mean, it's just, it's amazing. I, even on the, the, uh, the website for the Southern Poverty Law Center, which is like this famously progressive, yeah, sure. they're like, if homosexuality is genetic, as most scientists believe it is, then, you know, discrimination again. And I'm like, okay, that, that statement, if homosexuality is genetic, as most scientists believe, I'm like, do you even understand how heritability, you know, works? works? And yes, there's a there's a genetic contribution, but the heritability of sexual orientation is actually lower than the heritability of smoking. And it's lower than the heritability of job satisfaction. Okay, both of those things surprise me a lot. And you will not open su- up I'm any magazine and, be, and, and see a picture here. of a baby and say, um, is this child born unsatisfied with their job? You know? <laughs> the heritability of sexual orientation is around 35%. Wow. So, yes, it, that is significantly greater than zero. That is a statistically significant, you know, contribution. But it's obviously not deterministic. And, and we can't make that a precondition yeah you know yeah lisa it's so great to talk to you thank you for doing this with me fun was it fun yeah oh good all right i look forward to hearing the rest of you (laughs) thanks i want to hear eli's yeah i'll play it for you okay fun okay that's it that's all i got thanks to lisa diamond for being so forthcoming and candid i could have done that I could I could have kept going for a for a lot longer, but I but I didn't want to push my luck, uh, and I and I hope in any case that at least I enjoyed it as much as I did, and and, and hopefully as much as you did, folks. Uh, the music on Circle of Willis is written by Tom Stopher and Gene Ruley and and performed by their band, the New Drakes. For information about how to purchase their music, 
check out the, the About page at circleofwillispodcast.com. Don't forget that Circle of Willis is brought to you by VQR and the Center for Media and Citizenship at the University of Virginia, and that the, the Circle of Willis is a member of the TGFM network. Uh, you can find out more about uh, them, that network, those guys, at teej.fm. And uh, and it, you know, let me say, if you you know, if you like this podcast, why not give us a little review at, at iTunes and let us know how we're doing? It's easy. That's yeah, just do that. I'll see you all again at at episode four, uh, where I talk with Will Cunningham of the University of Toronto about uh, about becoming one of the world's preeminent neuroscientists and about about the aesthetics of data analysis. Believe it or not among many other things. Until that time, I'll, I'll see you later. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.